Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. Imagine, if you will, a university professor. What image springs to mind? Perhaps it is an elderly gentleman with white hair and a bow tie and small round glasses, very stereotypical. And now imagine that caricature of a professor going about his day. He eats a triangle of toast, buttered just so with only the slightest hint of honey, jam is for scones at morning tea time. He cradles a teacup and saucer and takes minute sips as he peers through the glasses perched on the end of his nose at the latest issue of his scientific journal. A thought strikes him suddenly, and so placing the cup and saucer down, he draws a pen from his shirt pocket and begins scribbling complex notation and indecipherable script on a notepad. Now, with this image of the professor in mind, if I asked you to take a test, say, a general knowledge quiz, do you think you would perform better than someone who hadn't just conducted this visualisation experience? And what if instead of the professor, I'd asked you to imagine a soccer hooligan? Would that make you score lower on the quiz? Well, two social psychologists asked exactly these questions, and according to their research, the answer was yes. If an individual is primed to think of either a professor, a stereotypically intelligent person, or a soccer hooligan, a stereotypically idiotic person, which was their words, then that person would do better or worse on a test of general knowledge. How fantastic! Who knew that being so smart could be so simple? You just have to imagine someone smart, put yourself in their shoes for a few minutes, and voila, you too can have a high IQ and all that comes with it. For a few minutes, anyway. Unfortunately, There's a catch. The claim is bullshit. In a university course I took last year, my class conducted a replication study, as had the same class in the previous three years, and they probably did it again this year. Using very similar priming effects in a general knowledge quiz taken from a list of questions found on a Who Wants to Be a Millionaire website, around 200 students in each class have attempted to replicate the results of that original study. Lo and behold, they never have. The difference between groups primed as either the professor or soccer hooligan, or neither, is negligible. No significant effect of priming has been found, despite numerous attempts to replicate the original study findings over the years. Unfortunately, this relatively harmless finding is not an isolated case. In fact, it has become something of a new norm for science, particularly in the fields of social psychology and medicine. In 2015, a report was released by a group of 200 scientists known as the Open Science Collaboration. They had spent the previous four years trying to replicate 100 studies previously published in three top psychology journals. The results were shocking. Of all 100 studies, only 36% were replicated, and in one of the journals, only 23% of previously submitted study findings could be replicated. Issues with replication had cropped up from time to time, but this project revealed the issue ran far deeper than had ever been realised. The industry was facing a replication crisis. But how can this be, I hear you ask? After all, isn't the scientific method supposed to ensure that the findings of studies are both accurate and repeatable? Yes, that should be the case. 
but there are a number of reasons why it is not, ranging from problems inherent to the scientific method itself to outright falsification of results, and we'll explore a few of these in this episode. But first, we need to establish the context for how scientific research comes to be and how findings from science are even identified in the first place, beginning with what drives scientific research. Money. For much of the 20th century, scientific research was government-funded, and many labs and institutions worked directly under the umbrella of the state. Research was driven by a desire to answer questions for the benefit of all. Science was a public good. But as the world wars became a distant memory, and people got bored with visiting the moon, budgets for scientific research began to wane. Science became increasingly outsourced to universities and to industry, with the fruits of science no longer going straight to the public, but to the design, marketing and production of ever more sophisticated technologies to be put into the hands of consumers. Science had become a commodity. Large corporations used to conduct much of their science in-house, but even this began to fade as it became clear that it was much cheaper to outsource research abroad. Philip Morovsky authored the 2011 book Science Mart, a title which is a play on Walmart as a metaphor for the selling out of American science to consumerism. He writes of several major US companies renowned for their research labs during much of the 20th century. He says, AT&T slashed research at Bell Labs starting in 1989. Onita spin off the remnant as Lucent in 1996. Raytheon sold off its central lab in Lexington in the early 1990s and divested its huge research unit in 2006. Texas Instruments began cutting its internal R&D capacity as early as 1982, only to divest it altogether in 1997. Westinghouse Churchill was first decimated and then sold off to Siemens. Research divisions disappeared altogether at firms such as US Steel and Gulf Chevron. By 1995, IBM had eliminated a third of its research budget. After the merger of Hewlett-Packard and Compaq, the renowned HP Labs was uh, slated for reorganisation and downsizing. Pfizer shut down its pharmaceutical labs in Ann Arbor after a decade of job cutbacks, just as it announced major expansions in China. As R&D became outsourced overseas and to tech startups, revered academic institutions also began to focus more on how scientific discoveries could be patented and sold, rather than furthering knowledge for its own sake. A lot of science has become a pursuit for profit and for the highest bidder, and carried out for the lowest price, so it is not hard to see how quality could have dropped, resulting in findings that may not be quite as solid as the research at first suggests. But money is not the only incentive, at least not directly. When scientists produce interesting and useful studies, they gain recognition, and through this they are offered more opportunities, and who knows, maybe even one day, a Nobel Prize. So what sort of research will help a scientist to establish themselves as an expert in their field and potentially usher in a new era in how we think about the world? The issue here is one of incentives. Lidiana Lazarevich of the University of Belgrade and one of the 200 scientists who conducted the Open Science Collaboration Replication Study says what is good for science and what is good for scientists are not always the same thing. In the present culture, scientists' key incentive is earning publication of their research, particularly in prestigious outlets. Research with new, surprising findings is more likely to be published than research examining when, why, or how existing findings can be reproduced. As a consequence, it is in many scientists' career interests to pursue innovative research, even at the cost of reproducibility of their findings. The issue described here 
is known as publication bias or the file draw problem. Quite simply, studies that report interesting or compelling findings are more likely to be published in scientific journals. Studies which find existing research cannot be replicated, or studies which test a hypothesis but find it is rejected, are also not that interesting. Do you expect to see headlines about all of the coronavirus vaccines that didn't work, or just the ones that do? Scientists conduct research all the time. That's what they do. But only a small fraction of research is published in the most popular journals, and an even smaller number report findings that are truly remarkable. Scientific progress is about making incremental gains, adding small layers of knowledge, clarifying details and slowly building up an understanding of how things are. Every so often a breakthrough appears, either through luck or good planning, and we take a paradigm leap. But most of the time, scientists just rule out possibilities, and for the most part, that is not that interesting. Science is not really about once-in-a-lifetime breakthroughs, but a concerted effort over many years by many teams. And many of those studies which didn't change the world end up filed away in a desk drawer. Hence, the file drawer problem. But what does this have to do with the replication crisis? Well, two things. Firstly, science which fails to replicate well-known studies is not sexy or exciting, so it is really published. And secondly, it pays to be a winner. So replication studies are often avoided in favour of studies that have the potential to be more interesting. There's an elephant in the room, though, which we'll turn to now. If it is desirable for a study to show remarkable results, then what if the science is manipulated? What if scientists are not entirely scrupulous? What if science is sometimes a fraud? Well, the good news is, fraud in science is extremely rare. One study conducted in 20, uh, 2009 found that approximately 2% of scientists admit to fabricating or falsifying data, and 14% know someone who has. The stakes are high. A scientist who knowingly falsifies data loses everything, they're shunned by the industry and often unable to work again. One of the most well-known examples is of Dutch psychologist Diederik Stapel of Tilburg University, who had been committing scientific fraud for at least a decade, in some cases making up entire experiments and submitting falsified studies to a number of well-known journals and the press. Remember that article that said that drinking a glass of red wine a day will help you live longer? Yeah, well, that was bullshit as well. The claim was that a particular ingredient, resveratrol, an antifungal or antibacterial agent found in grapes, has protective effects on the heart. The scientist behind a lot of this research, Deepak Das, was found guilty of 145 cases of falsifying or fabricating data. While many scientists still believe resveratrol has health benefits and research into it is ongoing, the quantities found in red wine are considered far too low to be of any therapeutic benefit. Dust passed away in 2013, at the age of 67. But the replication crisis is not really about bad science or even the file draw problem. It is as much to do with the way science establishes findings and theories. You may have heard the term statistical significance before. If not, I'll give you a brief explanation. We'll use the example I described at the beginning of the episode. So, we want to determine whether a group of people primed to think about a professor perform better on a quiz than people who are not primed. So we take two groups of people and randomly assign them to each group. And then for one group, we apply the priming task, but not for the other. Then they take the test. My hypothesis, which is my research question or assumption, is that scores on a quiz will be higher when the subject has been primed to think about the daily life and qualities of a professor. 
So now I have two possibilities. Either the subject does perform better than the non-prime group, or they don't. If they don't, then I could say that there is no effect of priming on test results. And before we begin, we call this the null hypothesis. So null hypothesis is priming has no effect, whereas the research hypothesis is that priming does have an effect. So I compare the results of the two groups that take the quiz and find an average mark for each group. So there's three possibilities now. The scores for the prime group will be lower, higher, or the same as the non-prime group. And then the question is, how much higher than the non-prime group would they have to be for me to conclude that the prime did indeed make a difference? If there were 20 questions on the quiz and both groups got an average of 13 right, then there's obviously no difference. But if the prime group got, say, 14 right, then does that tell me there was an effect? Probably not. It is so close that it is just as likely that, say, the higher score occurred as a result of chance. But let's say the score was 16 out of 20 for the prime group. Now I'd be thinking there could be an effect here. So how do I determine where that point is in which I can have the confidence that the result is unlikely to have occurred due to chance? Well, scientists say that that level is at 5%. That is, if the probability that the result could have occurred by chance is 5% or less, then the result is probably due to the manipulation, which in this case was the prime. But they don't say it like that. They say that in order for the null hypothesis to be true, that is, if there was really no effect, so no difference between the non-primed and the primed groups, then we could expect a random chance that a difference would appear, which would look like there was an effect. But if the chances of that are 5% or less then we can say that it was too unlikely, so we can reject the null hypothesis, and then our research hypothesis is supported. The lingo here is not that intuitive, but the point is pretty straightforward. Statistical significance is the level at which the results are unlikely to have occurred due to chance alone, and this level, which is normally 5%, is called the alpha level. But 5% isn't zero, so that still leaves the door open for the possibility that a claim could be made which isn't actually true, a so-called false positive. This is known as a type 1 error, when we set the alpha level so high that we incorrectly reject the null hypothesis. So to combat this possibility, we could close the door further and set the alpha level much lower, say 1%. So now in our priming study, let's say we only accept the effective priming of subjects score an average of 19 out of 20. It's a very high bar to cross, but we would have virtually no doubt that an effect must exist. Well now, we will probably never find such a high average, so we would conclude the effect of priming doesn't exist. But what if the priming did have an effect, but it only influenced the average score by a couple of marks, so there was an effect at, say, 17 marks? Now I'd reject my hypothesis when there was actually an effect, and this would be a type 2 error, or a false negative. But it doesn't end there. How many people did I test? If it was just two groups of 10 people, then I probably won't have enough data to really know. If I had more, then I would have more confidence that my study represents the real nature of priming on the population. But there is still more to it. But that should give you a sense for how proving or rejecting a research hypothesis is not black and white. The statistical methods used can find things that aren't there or miss them altogether. This has in part contributed to the replication crisis, and it is a difficult problem to solve, and we haven't even talked about researcher bias yet. There's a lot more to be said on the topic of how statistical significance is not the best way to measure whether research findings are true, but I'll let those of you with a desire for homework follow that up in the show notes with the article Why Most Published Research Findings Are False by John Ioannidis.
Professor Dorothy Bishop is a developmental neuropsychologist, and she argues we also need to consider how human cognitive biases have led to the replication crisis. Scientific thinking is not natural for humans, Bishop says. To act scientifically, we have to suppress our instincts and biases, and this is no simple task. How we weigh the value of null findings is as important as positive ones, but this is not what happens. What we see is a bias toward reporting only good news and emitting information which does not support theories that the researcher has some evidence of, a situation she describes as moral asymmetry. She also introduces a fundamental aspect of humanity which we discussed in episode 34, stories. She says, science would not advance at all if we just had mountains of unstructured data. We need to make sense of observations and use our theoretical understanding to guide our interpretation. But this reconstructive tendency has a negative side. It leads us to ignore facts that don't fit and to present our research as if it told a much neater story than is usually the case. It seems that our need to condense our worlds into complete narratives that we can make sense of also influences how we interpret research. Scientists may neglect to consider the myriad details and contrary effects as they try to fit the data into something they can make sense of, especially if it is what they want to find. To understand the crisis, we also need to think about how the studies are being replicated. There are two methods. An exact replication is where a research team attempts to reproduce the experiment exactly, or at least as closely as possible. So in our priming study, we carried out an exact replication of the original study and couldn't replicate the results. This method told us that the original findings were not true, but it doesn't say much about the theory in general. To test that, we could carry out a conceptual replication where we attempt to repeat the findings of the original study using a different methodology. So let's say that the concept of priming. Maybe it doesn't work to prime as a professor for three minutes, but it does over a longer period of time, or as a different type of person. Or perhaps we could try it subliminally by flashing up uh, pictures of um, a professor while you're reading another passage. If a general theory exists to describe behaviour in the world, then we should be able to design many different types of experiments to get at that truth, and it will emerge regardless of the type of study that we've conducted. So the replication crisis can occur in a few ways, and there are several explanations, and I haven't explored all of them here. But we've seen that in some rare cases, scientists do flub the truth, but most of the time, it is the process itself that overstates the findings, or are not of high enough quality to identify errors which may have given false results. There is also an incentive to publish studies with interesting or remarkable results, and the old saying is, if it sounds too good to be true, then it probably is, has some weight here. There's also a lack of interest and esteem in replicating results which aren't sexy, or findings which have been found in very specific cases, but which don't replicate in a more generalisable way. Much of the science that gets done is never published, so we focus too much on a relative handful of studies with major claims, and not so much on the broader body of material that slowly edges us closer to the truth of theories about the world. Both research itself and the way it is presented is influenced by cognitive bias. As much as science aims to operate outside of human limitations, in reality it struggles to do so. So how do we fix this problem and regain the credibility that science deserves? Well, for a start, many scientists think the replication crisis is a good thing. After all, now they have to be as rigorous as possible with their experiments and be extremely open about how they conducted their research. More and more scientists 
are now conducting replication studies to verify that the papers being published are accurate, and more attention is being paid to the statistical techniques used to interpret data and to verify research findings. So overall, the body of work being produced in the wake of the crisis is of a higher quality. No one wants to be outed as a purveyor of false positives, even if they didn't knowingly present false findings. In this episode, I've shown you that science isn't perfect by any stretch, and like many fields, it has been forced to step back and reflect on its methods. But through this navel-gazing can come better and more sound science, which will offer in time benefits for humanity and the environment. In 2020, when the world has ground to a halt, we need science more than ever to help us move forward. Unfortunately for us, most scientists are sceptics by training and principle, which can only be a good thing for furthering our knowledge of the world and everything in it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.